0: Welcome to Stories in the Landscape Conversations on StoryArchaeology.com. This is just one of the conversations with the gifted IRIE Project Competition winners. Today I get to talk with IRIE Competition winner Kate Leonis, who's created a powerful and atmospheric image of the iconic Morrigan. Now, Kate's Morrigan is transformative and powerful And the techniques involved in its creation are also fascinating. But Kate, that's enough from me. Look, would you like to tell us something about yourself?
1: Yes, I am Kate and I am from Sydney, Australia. And I really, really love just looking at the old stories and more recently getting into looking at women in stories. And I never created this morrigan image for a competition it was just something that came to me and then the competition happened um it was actually my sister emma who recommended that i submit this picture into the competition so i did and that's how i found all of you guys. And yeah, and here we are. So that's really, that's how the the picture happened.
0: (laughs) I'm in Ireland. You're in near Sydney. So tell us a little bit about where you live and what it's like where you are.
1: Yes. Um, Well, I live in Sydney. I live in uh, like a suburb uh, just in the south of the city um, called San Susie and I live right on Botany Bay and from my house I can see a place called Cornell which is where Captain Cook came to Australia and set anchor for the first time and where Australia became colonated. That is the word I will use. And
0: it's a beautiful place. I haven't been to Botany Bay. I have have been as far as Sydney. So I'm picturing it while you're talking. I'm picturing the Funny enough, I find I picture the smell of Australia. If that makes sense, I do. Just the smell of the trees and the flowers and the sunshine. It's just so different from, shall we say, soggy wet island. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I like Ireland too. <laughs> no, it's just, especially this this summer, where it just. I think we had the wettest July on record. And that's probably yeah. why I mentioned the smells, because the dry, scented air compared to, shall we say, the smell of moss. An occasional mould, I think, is what we get here at the moment.
1: <laughs> yes, they could. Yes, I can. I can see that definitely. It's um, it's actually quite dry at the moment, and we might have the warmest summer that we've had for a while this summer. So you never know. We've had some cooler summers over the last few years. So yeah, be exciting. Mm,
0: it was hot enough when I was in Brisbane in uh, January and February, and there was something of a heat wave. Uh, oh, really? while I was there. Oh, yes. And it was yeah. beginning to feel more like Darwin than Brisbane, to be honest at the time. Very, very humid. Oh, humid. <laughs> it, it was interesting as long as you didn't don't try and go walking in the Glasshouse Mountains, which my son and I did, about three o'clock in the afternoon. Not a good idea.
1: Yeah. No <laughs> No. <laughs> Bushwalking walking in the afternoon no.
0: I know at the moment you've got a young family so you're really really busy with with the shall we say young family stage but you were telling me some of the things you were doing before those years it was very interesting.
1: I have like two boys um, there at school and I've spent that time sort of developing painting and drawing and photography which is what my picture's from and before I had the family I'd sort of gotten into it a little bit but before that uh, my background's actually in science and I did a Bachelor of uh, Science by like Anatomy and Physiology and mm-hmm. then a degree in Radiation Therapy and then I had to give all that up quite quickly because I had my kids so it's a big change in direction
0: it really it is was. Isn't it? and
1: it's really ironic because I'm now back at uni doing physiotherapy so
0: hey back to where we started. <laughs> You've talked a little bit about and that you've had time to get back into art and particularly photography, but but what is your favourite me- medium? Is it photography? It's
1: really interesting. I think photography on occasion, but there are days where I do lo- like just sitting down with a pad or paint or whatever and just doing that, mm-hmm. and I can do that for a few months, and then I might pick up a camera and, say, take some photos if there's something about that that I like. Mm-hmm but I do like the elements of manipulating a photo to help tell a story. Mm. So, so I think I like how I'm able to
0: change directions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You seem to be very flexible in your approach and ready to take on anything that comes your way. The areas that you work in and, uh, it, it, yeah, it's, it's extremely interesting. But I wanted to talk a little bit more about where you live. Yeah. I remember when I first realised I was going to spend a lot of time in Australia. So I've got close family in Brisbane and I go over every year. But I remember when I first discovered that I was going to be Going to Australia every year. My first reaction was hang on a bit. My interests are in ancient history and uh, mythology. And I wanted to be able to travel places where I would find a lot of ancient history. I'm still trying to get to southern Iraq to stand on the sheepfolds of Uruk. But this is what I thought 17 years ago Australia is a young country. I'm not going to be finding ancient history in Australia. And How wrong I was. I now know every time I visit Australia, I feel as though I'm standing on the oldest place on Earth, surrounded by the oldest stories. And there was one point in not far away from your area, the Blue Mountains outside Sydney, (laughs) when I was standing in the Janolan Caves and realised that I was standing on rock that was so ancient that there was not even one fossil to be found that if I wanted to find the ancient land, I was in the right place. And it changed my attitudes. And really, I would say Australia is my second home.
1: It's so funny you say that because I grew up in the Blue Mountains from when I was about 5 to 25. And then I've moved back to Sydney. But, you know, my whole childhood was in the mid-Blue Mountains in a place called Lawson. Oh, wow. Which original name was a blue mountain it was called the original blue mountain and it's the last place in the blue mountains that you can see sydney after that from a place called Bullaburra, blue skies village onwards you can't see the plains anymore below wow yeah, it's gorgeous up there absolutely love it's it. it's
0: another world it's just so beautiful and it,
1: yeah and it's really interesting because you leave sydney going into the blue mountains which is west and you have to travel up this sort of windy windy road and first of all your ears pop a little bit but you automatically i feel like all my stress leaves and i'm home and you, all the trees are there and it's quiet and it's peaceful there's a, a river called the nepean river west of sydney just going up it's just so beautiful and just as you keep go keep going into the mountains and they're not really mountains. So to anyone who hasn't seen it, don't be, please don't be disappointed because they're not mountains. Um, the Blue Mountains is actually like a big plateau that is incredibly old and it looks like mountains because it's eroded over many, many millions of years and used to be, I think, the bottom of a seabed because you can find fossils of like mm. little um, ocean creatures on the tops of um, things, which is really quite cool. So you'll sort of see not necessarily peaks, but you'll see sort of flat tops and then a sheer drop. Gorgeous. Oh, the colours are beautiful. And, I mean, it's a a eucalypt forest. So Mm -hmm. do you know why it's called the Blue Mountains? Tell, Tell us why. It's from Sydney and you look west and you can see the Blue Mountains. The eucalypts have like a green and like a yellow in their leaves. And so when you see it from quite far away, it's sort of got a like an ocean bluey, greeny colour to it. And so in the haze, it does look quite blue. And then as you get closer, it becomes green. That's why it's called the Blue Mountains, yeah.
0: And of course, it's just full of stories, isn't it? And
1: there's a few different Aboriginal communities that have been there. And a few of the stories have been able to remain. And I don't know any specifically of, say, Janolan Caves. I'm sure there are some. But there's a place in the Blue Mountains, and if have, I don't have you ever caught heard of the Three Sisters? Mm-hmm. It's in a place called Katoomba in in the Blue Mountains. You come to sort of a rocky outcrop that's a sheer drop, and, and you can see this whole valley. Like on your left hand side, there is this sort of raggy outcrop that comes up. And on this raggy outcropper, three of these sort of rocks, and they're called the Three Sisters. And they're just beautiful. Yes. Like when the light hits them at certain times of the day, it's just absolutely gorgeous. Google it. It's just beautiful. And there is a story associated with that that most of us Blue Mountain types know. It's like as always, there's always different variations on the story. But I do have one if you want to hear it. Oh, yes, please. Go you on. you hear it. Okay. So the area is, and I'm going to pre- mispronounce people's names here, so Gunnadara, Gandara Gun- mm. Dreaming. There were three sisters Mihni, Wimla and Gunadu. And they lived with the local people in the Jamison Valley, which is the valley that's next to the three sisters in Katoomba, which would be on the south side. The three girls were in love with three brothers of the neighbouring nation, the Darek people, which is more closer to Sydney but because there were opposing tribes that weren't allowed to get married. The brothers didn't like that and they decided to try and kidnap the girls, and that started a war. There was a like a wizard medicine man Mm -hmm. technical term is Karanjuri of the Gunadara people and he used his magic to turn the sisters to stone. Now, from here, this is where I I feel like things have passed. I'm going to tell you what I used to hear. And just as he was doing it, a um, <laughs> a bunyip, which is an Australian mythical creature, found him and started chasing him. And As he was chasing away, he turned himself into something called a lyrebird, which is an Australian bird. And as he did it, he dropped his wand. Mm. He escaped the bunyip mm. and... Because he did that, he dropped his wand and he wasn't able to turn himself back into a human and the girls back into stone. So they're forever trapped in stone. And you'll see lyrebirds in the Jamison Valley sort of scratching Mm -hmm. the ground with their noses. Mm -hmm. And it's said to be medicine man looking for his wand Mm
0: -hmm. to turn them back. It's it's a wonderful story. And I love the way the Indigenous Australian stories, they really do hold the messages about the landscape around them they are the original stories in the landscape i just love it now yeah
1: the the aboriginal culture is um incredible about, about using stories to be able to describe their landscape their practices and yeah and how they live maybe lessons they've had to learn, Mm. um, how they've had to adapt to their environment, and maybe the way that they've done lessons. You know, don't eat that berry.
0: Don't eat those mushrooms. Mm -hmm. There are stories up Around uh, Kakadu Litchfield area, about the bad lands, you know, the lands yeah. which should be left alone, should be kept away from. And later on, these were the areas where was such damage was done with the mining of uranium. Mm. You know, their stories don't say, this is uranium. What well, they say, this is, this is bad yeah. land. People get sick here if you interfere with the ground. Oh, yes. And these environmental messages have been passed on for generation after generation. It's just that, um, well, we've learned different ways of looking at things and it's, I think it's very important. Oh, it was,
1: it's, I mean, I love the stories because they impart information from generation to generation on how to live well mm-hmm. and with the environment Like a lot of the tribes of the Indigenous community usually had areas that they worked through. Some of them used burning techniques to keep the um, uh, eucalyptus trees or their rubbish from being too rubbishy, which is Mm. why we have those massive fires every now and again. It was said, now I'm not sure if it's actually happening, but it was said back in 2019 that when we had those really horrible bushfires just before COVID, that... The government was looking at having conversations with the Indigenous community and actually having a conversation about how the stories, or at least how, what were their techniques of doing, for want of a better way, safe burning, yeah, planned burning, burning, and doing it in such a way that it would work with the land a lot more because those fires back in 2019 were just destructive.
0: Oh, I was in Brisbane in September 19. And at that point, there were events being cancelled the whole time. A lot of the Brisbane festival was cancelled. The fireworks were cancelled because of the danger of fire. My family was sending me pictures with red skies over Brisbane. People were getting sore throats and breathing problems in the middle of Brisbane. It was absolutely terrifying, even just watching it from here. So, yeah, yeah, we've a lot to learn. Yeah, and I find that.
1: Amazing that we can still get that from stories Mm -hmm. and things that we might consider
0: obsolete. Thank you for passing on some of those stories. Well, Well, of course, the Irish mythological stories couldn't possibly be as old as the Australian ones I mean, there was an ice age in Ireland that was a bit of a limitation to human settlement. However, many of our stories seem to carry memories that go back at least to the Iron Age and probably before. But, and anyone who wants to find out about that, there's plenty more information on story archaeology. But how did you become interested in Irish stories?
1: It's really interesting. My, I think my interest in the Irish stories... Mm-hmm. Well, I'd say originally as a child I may have seen television shows with banshees and things and that sort of piqued my interest. Mm. How did you hear
0: about the Morrigan?
1: I think when I actually created, when I had the picture in my head, I actually back-researched and I found the Morrigan and reading her Wikipedia story, which I have now realised is a <laughs> sliver of what it really is. Yeah, it is but a that's bit. it's okay. Um, <laughs> but it, there was elements of it that really resonated and I got quite interested. And then the more I, this sort of worked with the picture and then I was sort of building. And every time I built on something, I would find out a
0: little bit more. And then whether it is true, yeah. That's really interesting because you have an image of something you want to produce in your head and then yes. you find an Irish character yes. out of mythology that fits it. Yeah. That's really interesting because most people say, oh, I've read some of the stories about Cú Chulainn and or um, Finn McCall and so forth. But you yeah. come with an image in your head and it's an Irish mythological figure that fits what you want to communicate. Yeah. I think that's fantastic. I have to say that I'm afraid Irish mythology on Wikipedia is a little bit... um, It's vague, and often it's full of bits and pieces. Now, I know where all this comes from, but she's so much more than that. And it's funny that you started with the image. Do you feel like going off and finding more about other Irish stories now? Do they pique your interest, as it were? Yes,
1: but I do find the stories to be really lovely, and I really love the fact that the women in there are strong multi-faceted and that's what really where I wanted to go with because I've done a little bit of research say on Mary Magdalene and I think she's a really wonderful example about someone who's been vilified with very little to go on so I've now viewed a lot of these ancestral figures with a bit of a, a lens that it's probably been distorted mm-hmm. to suit a um, 19th century patriarchal white sort of <laughs> idea. But I
0: wasn't quite sure where it had gone off track. In the earliest stories, maybe Kathmagatura, the Morrigan, this wonderful, glorious woman equal of the Dagda himself. She's the Dagda's woman. Later on, she is the herald of the battle herald. But by the time of the Battle of Clontarf, so we're getting into Norman times, she's nothing but a lean and nimble hag leaping over the the spears of battle. So she's almost become a banshee-like figure. And I'm afraid under, once you get colonialism and Normans coming in, sort of. They're a bit narrow-minded, shall we say, in their their religious views. There's definitely this um, demoting of certain figures and the Morrigan did suffer. So from this glorious golden, often figure, often dressed in red, she becomes gray and black and ancient and ugly. But nevertheless, you, you really did catch something. And I now know why, because you started with the image. Now we really should discuss your picture. It's about time we got on with this. The image of the Morrigan is impressive, both ethereal and solid at the same time. And the landscape into which your figure is set has a similar quality. For example, the rocks of the foreground, they're rocks, but they could, they almost move like a
1: seascape. Yes, they do. And I ch- i love photographing in that uh, particular region, which is actually quite close to Kernel.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it is just like a rocky... I'm trying to think of what you would call a rocky sort of like sort of expanse that actually falls straight into the sea. So, and if you look at it, from, so it is
0: water washed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is what you've called. And I
1: absolutely love shooting there because it's just got such a organic idea to it, and I love the fact that it also looks ancient. It's been there for many, many a millennia and it will be there long, long after
0: I've gone. And it's just, it's very, yeah. It's that ancient landscape again. We can come back to discuss the composition of the subject, but you've you've already started talking about the process. Now... You're talking about photography and you've described your your entry as a photograph with digital elements. Could you take us through that process step by step?
1: Of course, definitely. So I had had it in my head, the idea of what I wanted this picture to look like. And at the time, I had a lady who does dress designs at the local college and she had this beautiful, black, very fitting dress. I really liked the fact that it was timeless it also sort of allowed the person who was wearing it to show their shape which I think is important in a photo and so when I actually took the photo it was me and this lovely young woman who donated her time to me Mm -hmm. and we went to this rocky beautiful place and Mm -hmm. I set it up I think I had a little bit of smoke I had on the side to have smoke because I quite like that idea about it I took the picture and that was it. Like I just took the picture. The day was actually cloudless, not a cloud in the sky, very sunny. Hence why you can see this girl looking like she's in Mm -hmm. a high contrast. Her face is actually quite brightly lit up but her back is very dark. For some reason I thought it was important to add an orb. Mm Mm-hmm. At the time, I had no idea why, but I thought it was important. So the girl was also holding what looked like a white sphere of some sort. Mm -hmm. And I had her holding it. And that was it. Then I opened it up in Photoshop. I had just been on a cruise, I think, rather recently before that. And I'd taken my camera and took a whole bunch of cloud pictures because clouds at sea are just A whole different thing.
0: Oh, I love taking cloudscapes.
1: Oh, cloudscapes are beautiful. Mm -hmm. And then I put it into the picture and made it look like it was meant to be there. And then I played with a lot of colour. So I think I did a lot of painting on the cloud. I will mention I also wanted the girl to wear feathers So on the dress, there's some feathers on her um, shoulders and there were just sort of two what looked like feather headdresses I think I bought off eBay, Yeah. I think. Don't know why. At the time I went, yeah, that works. Fine. And then I played with her dress. I did something, I think it's called diffusion, if I'm correct, where it allows her to look like she's fading away and then I then painted back some of it some of her dress again but instead of using like a paintbrush i was able to get a bird shaped brush and then just like literally Mm. dot it in and i would change the colors and the orientation of the brush so all the birds look like they were flying in Mm. different directions um i think i took some photos of some i think they're called sydney ravens Mm -hmm. that's as close as i'm ever going to get to a crow. included them in the (laughs) shot and that's how I did it yeah and then play with some light and made sure it all sort of
0: worked it does work and when I view your Morrigan what I get is that she's a powerful transmitter I think the orb was a brilliant idea it has that feeling I mean literally a modern transmitter you know the idea that you've got a message being sent out the birds transformation all the messengers that's what I got. It's, she is both the messenger and the message. And for a poet, herald, predictor and analyst, the one who carries news and treaties, recording the actions of law keepers or law breakers, I think that's, that's what you've got perfectly. And it's both ancient, but it's also very modern. Uh, does that make sense? It does, yeah. And I suppose
1: since I created the picture, it sort of was just left... And then I think I was talking to Mm -hmm. my sister one day and I think she was talking about your podcast and she said, you're you're like, these people talk about The Morrigan, you Mm -hmm. should listen to it and you should add the picture next year into the thing. And I went, oh, okay. I hadn't even thought about it. So that's when I listened to, I think, the updated version of The Morrigan with um, your friend. Yeah and it was just validating to hear mm-hmm. what the actual text was saying and i've just looked at my picture and went oh thank goodness <laughs> oh that's good <laughs> i did it yes and i felt like i mean i was <laughs> I, mean, I was really
0: happy that i was able to get her essence and what she is if she, if she is the messenger and the message you, you managed to pass on the message and i think you've caught her perfectly oh thank you just one more thing have you any plans for this picture be to be seen more widely?
1: Um, I would like to so I love the other uh, I mean I've been slowly listening to the other stories of the like the ancestors and I've already tried doing I'm gonna say her name Aramed Aramed it. thank you It's all right
0: it's got an M in it don't worry about it it took me Aravid. ages
1: out of it because I have done the science and the radiation therapy now the physio. And I love the idea of herbalism and that there was this whole ancestor that was dedicated to this and the beautiful story behind it. And I thought, no, I want to do her justice as well. So I've given her story a try. I've made a picture of her and I and now I've listened to more of her story and I want to go mm. back and do some changes. So what I've captured is her story and her moment.
0: Hers is an, a very interesting story. She's not nearly well enough known, and she's another one of the characters from the Kathmakatora. When Isolde and I were researching that, we realised that Aravid and her brother Miak were both names which represented measurements of grains and the, the food that keeps you healthy, part of the healer's uh, skill. She has the understanding of what the land can produce, what, it, what it's producing to support people. And it's a very interesting story. And then when we realised that the great physician, Dien Kecht, his name actually meant eager plough, we realised we have this agricultural story and she becomes a, a really quite major figure. And yet she's very little known because she just has one small part of a story.
1: Yes, yeah, definitely. I'd love to work through more Irish, I'm not sure if I should call them goddesses or ancestor figures, but we'll say ancestor figures. And I think they've got a lot to teach us.
0: I will put up a gallery for you, and so please go on sending pictures. What other plans have you got for your art in the upcoming future? I would
1: really like to continue this series, aim to listen to the original stories and really get the essence of what each one of them is and hopefully be able to sort of create some sort of, I will call it a coffee table book or a book of some sort with the images and their story next to it. So then there's, you know, both
0: both there. That's a brilliant idea. Well, you you know, I'm looking forward to seeing more of your work. Good luck with the stories. And in fact, it's the Morrigan herself who says uh, at the end of Moitura, she goes, let this story be told nine times eternal, for is this not a story worth the telling? Thank you so much. It was wonderful. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this Stories in the Landscape conversation. Remember, on www.storyarchaeology.com, you will be able to access the whole archive of Story Archaeology podcasts. You can also explore a wide selection of my audio and video stories for children, as well as a range of project and support materials for schools. Also, discover information on a number of international arts events and competitions with which Story Archaeology is closely linked. There will be another Stories in the Landscape conversation along soon.